a big adaptation is the improvement to be able to recruit, like you said. So in other words, the ability for nerves to be able to turn on muscles to a larger degree. And that's then what from doing strength training allows you to go from using five of your eight cylinders to using eight of your eight cylinders. That triathlon show, 230. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dave Cripps, who is the Director and Physical Performance Coach at Tri Tenacious and Coalition Performance. Dave has worked with both professional and amateur athletes in and out of triathlon, uh, including working as the strength and conditioning coach with uh, the Leicester Tigers in uh, their rugby glory days. And uh, in today's interview, he shares his thoughts on how strength training can be incorporated in a triathlon training program in a very time-efficient manner. And I think that's one of the main takeaways. I'll uh, spill the beans already from this episode, that uh, you don't necessarily have to go to the gym even twice per week. Once per week can be enough. And uh, that was uh, a good discussion that we had with Dave about that. But before we jump into the interview, a big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. If you're not quite sure where to start when it comes to hydration and electrolytes, then the place to start, in my opinion, is to go back and listen to episode 49 of this podcast. That's where I interviewed the founder of Precision Hydration, Andy Blow, who is uh, one of the greatest experts on that topic. Uh, so go back and listen to that because we cover basically all the bases when it comes to electrolytes and hydration. So that would be where I would start. And then if you're interested in trying out Precision Hydration's electrolyte products, go and uh, try your first box or tube for free with the promo code THATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka became world famous when they designed the Roka Maverick wetsuit line initially, but since then they've grown to produce so much more than that. And the latest big jump in uh, a product category that they've included is the eyewear side of thing, where they're really focusing on making performance glasses for sports, but also making things like prescription prescription glasses and blue light blocking glasses. So all sorts of eyewear is available these days on Roka. And uh, as with all their other equipment, the traditional wetsuits and trisuits and so on, uh, these are very highly researched and, and developed. There's been a lot of time and effort going into making them better than what is out on the market today and uh, focusing on making sure that all the small details are in place. So look no further than roca.com if you're searching for any kind of eyewear. And get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS20. Without any further ado, here's my interview with Dave Cripps. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Dave. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's uh, been a while since doing a strength training episode, and it's an important part of uh, triathlon training and endurance training in general. So really excited to have this discussion. Can you start by introducing yourself and uh, who you are and what you do for the listeners? 
Yeah, um, pro- I'll probably start where it all began. I, th- I think like most coaches, you uh, you enjoy sport. And particularly for me, probably in my teens, late teens, it was getting into endurance sports, so particularly running. So that kind of led to half marathons and eventually some uh, some ultra marathon um, com- com- competing as well. And I went to university and did a sports science degree and wasn't really entirely sure initially where that would lead me. But really got a passion for understanding the human body, how it performs and, and how it could be trained. And when going into doing a master's degree then, which again was in sport and exercise science, it became really clear to me, I, I didn't just want to be in a lab. I didn't just want to be writing research papers. I wanted to be working directly with people, inspiring, influencing them and allowing them in, in their sport to be able to, to really excel. And that's really, I suppose, what started my career 15 odd years ago as a strength and conditioning coach. So that originally was kind of in regional sports and kind of elite university sports. So that included triathlon, included rugby, probably about several different sports. And that then naturally led them into a big portion of my career, which was in professional rugby union in strength and conditioning. So I was at a club called Leicester Tigers that at the time. Uh, they're not doing so well now, but at the time were uh, Europe's biggest rugby club. And that really exposed me to being able to not only work with some superb athletes, but also some superb coaches in my field and have access to a lot of really the world's best minds, um, not just in what you think would be rugby, but a lot of it tied into endurance sport, including I know guests who you've had on here um, as well. But um, my career changed a bit then. I, I had my first son. And for me, I didn't just want to be living in professional sport with my athletes. I had to, you know, my son was ill and I, I wanted to, for him to become more of a priority, but I was still passionate about strength and conditioning. So four and a half years ago, I took a huge risk and saw an opportunity and set up what's called Coalition Performance. And that's a physical training facility. It's one of the UK's biggest strength and conditioning facilities here in the UK. And we work with a whole range of weird and wonderful people from triathletes, runners, cyclists, um, people who aren't in sports as well in terms of delivering the strength and conditioning. And then more recently, the final thing has been starting what we call Tritonaceous. And that's the world's first online strength and conditioning resource, which is actually specifically 100% focused triathletes. So it's been a bit of a journey, um, but nevertheless, hopefully an interesting one. So I'm looking forward to speaking. Yeah, it sounds like it definitely has been a journey. Uh, I want to go back to your time at the, the Leicester Tigers there, uh, being inver- immersed in that really elite environment and uh, with the players and the coaches. What What is one or, or a couple of like really important, interesting nuggets that you learned from your time there? I mean, th- th- there's so many, but I, I think if there was probably a couple, I think the first one would be very quickly you realise that having great theory, great knowledge and, and kind of great um, underpinnings to your training is really important. And I, I never deny that. But it becomes a point where, particularly as a coach, and I know uh, as someone who can, who does triathlon myself and all your listeners, one of the huge factors is how well that program works is based on your buy-in, your motivation, and and how much you can value that program. So a big part of I think learning over my time there as a coach and his real interest was in the side of the kind of the coach athlete relationship. It's all well and good me bringing and presenting a great program, but it's only great if that athlete can understand it. They can build um, a kind of interest in it. And I could communicate in a way with them that begins and allows them to see it's not just training in a gym. It's actually back then it was part of their rugby. And I think that's very particularly true for triathlon. I think strength and conditioning has to be seen as 
not just something separate. It has to really be seen as, if you want to call it like a fourth discipline, it has to be that kind of additional thing that bolts on. But that can only happen if people can understand how it can help them. And and you can do that in a way that they can understand. Probably then a, a second thing, I guess, would be, you know, we had a lot of discussions over the years with, I mean, some su- superb coaches, academics from all corners of the world. And a lot of the time, I think you can take information at face value. Like sometimes, I don't know, um, as a triathlete, you might just see a training program and pick it up and think, right, I'm going to do that. Or you'll just read a book. But you become really aware that actually it's imperative that you don't just understand what people are talking about, but you can understand how best to use that in your little world, in your little context. So, for example, at our rugby club, we had superb resources, some of the best resources in the world. But how we applied what we learned was different to, say, if it was a rugby club that didn't have those resources. Similarly, with triathlon, if you're a triathlete who has um, twice as much time per week to train as somebody else, how you interpret and use the information that you read, whether that's online or on a podcast, is going to be different to the person who's got half the amount of time as well. So they're probably two, two quick things I can probably think of. Yeah, uh, context and uh, the athlete coach relationship and and buy-in; those are are two two great points to bring up. Uh, the first uh, or next uh, topic, I don't want to go too much into this because we've kind of beaten it to death quite a few times, I think. But just a very brief summary of what you would consider the benefits of doing strength and conditioning training for endurance athletes. Uh- I, I'm I'm really into making people understand things really simply, but in in ways that they can understand it from other things they know in their life. So with strength training, I kind of put it for triathlon into to three elements. The first one's economy. So I always describe economy as that, you know, if you're driving your car and you're going at 55 miles per gallon, you're going to be able to drive a lot more further Um, in comparison to if you're going at 40 miles per gallon. And we know that strength training, not just through science and and, and, and case studies, definitely improves economy, um, particularly when it comes to running and the bike. So in other words, we can use a smaller amount of energy, oxygen in this case, uh, at given speed. So that's the first one. I think then the other angle is what we always refer to as efficiency, but sometimes people don't know the difference between economy and efficiency. But I think it's really important, particularly when it comes to I think one of the big challenges that, that triathletes have when we first see them is it's not going the distance that's the problem. It's they want to get faster over the distance and finding those extra gears to be able to push into and work into to get that is the challenge. And that's where efficiency come in. So with efficiency, again, if, if, if you imagine your car again, if we're going, I don't know, driving down the motorway, if we're going, at, let's say, at 100 miles an hour um, over the distance of 100 miles and we're using a certain amount of energy to be able to do that, that will give us an idea of our efficiency. Now, if we tune that engine a little bit and all of a sudden now we can go 110 miles an hour over that same 100 miles an, um, 100 mile distance, that then allows us to be able to travel the same distance but at a faster speed but using the same amount of energy. So that's another area that we know strength training can have a significant impact in as well. The final one, and again, I think that this is a little bit more broad and holistic, but it's huge. I mean, how, how, how many people listening have that 
period of training where, I don't know, maybe they're swimming and they've got a shoulder niggle and the quality of your training suffers. You can still train, but the technique, the quality of the sessions is poor. And it means over a cycle, for example, over a number of weeks, you don't get as much out of your training. And obviously, if you really get injured, then you can't train at all. We know aside from having a well-managed, well-structured um, overall triathlon training program in your three disciplines, strength training really is the, the next kind of supplementary tool to make sure that we can maximize not only our availability to train, but really maximize the quality because a big thing that every triathlete loves is to swim, bike and run. Well, maybe not all to the same degree, but they love the sport. So I think a really imperative thing with strength training to remember is strength training is there to allow you to have better quality and to spend more time doing what you love, not just trying to drag you into a gym and lift weights. Yeah, perfect. And uh, the other side of the argument, then, uh, I agree with you. I think strength training is important, but uh, there are people that, that don't think that. And I think that it's important to highlight that side of the coin as well. Uh, for example, somebody like Brett Sutton, he does not uh, really do strength training, especially not for age group athletes, I believe, because of the limited time they have to train. And the arguments that he proposes are that, for example, you can do strength-based training in sport so do low cadence work do hill running do paddle work on the swim and uh, and the other thing that he talks about is i guess that the the injury prevention side of thing it just comes with load management and also never really training all out especially not on the run i think they always avoid maximum running so there is that side of the coin what uh, would you say to that you know, I first of all, I mean, I always respect the coaches and kind of professionals' opinion. And you know, I I think the the argument regarding time is always a, a critical one when it comes to strength training in endurance sports like triathlon. But maybe as we'll talk about um, in a little bit, the realities of actually um, how you can benefit from strength training, but in a way which makes it highly practical, actually means that. A lot of the time, the, the amount of time people think they need to dedicate towards strength training to improve their triathlon is actually, in reality, far less than what they actually think in the first place. So quality surpasses quantity. Um, and we can talk, if we would get a chance, a little bit more about that, because I think there's some really key things that would be of huge value to a lot of people, which aren't just touched. What I would say about you get strength improvements from just doing your sport Again, if, if we're looking at evidence, I think there's one massive factor that can be ignored in that argument. And I talked uh, to a group of cyclists about this. If we want to optimally improve strength, we need to load a muscle when it lengthens and when it shortens. So if we take cycling, for example, we know that, say, the quadriceps, for example, they only really get taxed when they're shortening. Now, that will give some degree of strength benefit, particularly w w when you're first getting into triathlon. But the muscle isn't getting loaded when it lengthens. And consequently, that is a huge mechanism which causes strength increases. And the only way in reality you can effectively overload a muscle when it lengthens in a way which allows you to go through good range of motion, good time and attention, and vice versa, and with correct quality is to use strength training. There is no way around it. I think the final thing with injury, I totally agree, as I kind of alluded to, that managing training load is, is an important thing and really is the overriding thing when it comes to injury. But again, I think there's some concrete facts with science that can't be ignored. I mean, take, for example, we have a lot of triathletes come to us with, um, let's take, for example, hamstring and calf and Achilles problems. One of the things that has stopped them from being able to get over those injuries and come to us in the first place is 
all other means, including managing their training load, hasn't allowed them to solve the problem. And one of the key things that's missing is that they haven't been able to, again, load the muscle in a way like I just mentioned, where we're developing strength and tolerance through that muscle when it shortens and when it lengthens. So a great example is we know that eccentric training, i.e. loading the muscle when it lengthens, is one of the most effective ways to protect muscles against ruptures um, and tears at the same time. So I think there's some very, very concrete, solid evidence, not just anecdotally, but in the science to show the merits and benefits um, of strength training. That's not to take away from the fact that um, managing your overall training program is absolutely imperative. I totally agree with that. And it's certainly not to take away from the fact that your training time has to really be prioritized around the three disciplines. But hopefully, as we'll get a chance to speak about, there are very practical ways to be able to get around that at the same time. Yeah, so let's get into that. Uh, we can maybe consider some examples of different time budgets for triathletes and how to incorporate strength and conditioning depending on how much time you have available for total training. So, so for example, if we have somebody on the very low side, they might be training six or seven hours per week or maybe let's let's call it six to eight hours per week and then we have somebody who's more in the 12 13 15 hours per week how would you incorporate strength training in those two scenarios so one of the things that i i can first of all speak about with triathletes is i use the term that i mentioned just of, of quality completely surpasses quantity and the quality of training really comes down to not just the exercises you're doing but the, the real Achilles heel with it is how you're doing them. And the nature of people like us who are into endurance is because when you run, you have thousands of foot contacts. And when you're cycling, you have thousands of revolutions. You don't have to think meticulously about every single little movement because of the fact you do so many of them. But when it comes to strength training, there has to be a very short but very deep focus on what you're doing. And that's really what underpins technique. And that can be something that compromises quality sometimes of strength training that the triathletes do. But in essence, take us, for example, with, with people who we coach. The majority of triathletes we coach, we just coach once per week. They will do one main strength session per week in regards to proper strength and resistance training, which will include, typically speaking, obviously it's, it's tailored to the individual. Um, it will include a, a couple of leg strength-based exercises. It will usually include some pulling um, and torso strength exercises, and it will include mobility work as well. And usually that's incredibly surprising when people first speak to me that, well, I only need to lift weights once a week for, what, 40, 45 minutes? And the answer is yes. And there is sound evidence to show that Again, it's not that you need to be in the gym three, four, five times a week to get the benefits that we've spoke about with strength training for endurance sports. And we've got thousands of bits of data, again, to support the fact that improvements in the things that we've spoke about actually can occur with that small amount of strength-based work. Now, practically, um, how that might fit into a couple of scenarios that you've spoke about is Fundamentally, there has to be one main strength session per week, as I alluded to, that is, you could say, gym-based. For some people, strength training to begin with is very much body weight work, um, but obviously as people progress, they'll start to use external resistance, and that will typically usually take someone around about 40 minutes. Then what we try to then do is make sure that other bits that we need to do or they need to do can just be naturally incorporated into their other training, for example, particularly their warm-ups. 
or it can just be put into times of the day that they can multitask. So, for example, one of the other things that we do once per week with triathletes is what we call transfer work, and that's making sure the strength improvements that you make transfer to running on the road, pedaling a bike, and pulling through the water. And a very practical way to be able to do that if you've already used up your time once per week from doing your leg strength work is to do that work as a solid warm-up before your run or your bike. And that can take no more than 15 minutes. So an example of that is maybe using um, stiffening or plyometric work. Although, as a lot of our content puts, how you do that's very important because people can usually jump in at the deep end a bit too deep. So the second point is that a lot of it can be included into um, warm-up based work alongside the one main strength session you do per week. So the strength session would be, let's say, 40 minutes. The movement work would just be part of your usual warm-up anyway, so it wouldn't take any additional time. The last thing then is mobility. So our big thing with mobility is, is small amounts frequently beat large amounts infrequently. So most people watch the telly. Most people will listen to a great podcast like this. And for five minutes a day, if they're doing targeting mobility, and when I say targeting mobility, I mean they're stretching the areas that are specifically going to improve them for triathlon. Again, that's five minutes that is actually not added on to what you're doing because you would have been doing something else anyway. So in essence, if we're actually looking at just additional time that you have to add on, for someone, that could be up to 40 minutes a week because the other bits around that are just part of your warm-up and what you do at home. Or if somebody's doing, say, a couple of strength training sessions per week, like we do with some of triathletes, although that's kind of a bit more icing on the cake, it might be around about an hour and 15 minutes per week. And that's usually a hell of a lot less than what people would usually associate that you need to be able to do. Yeah, that, that really is. And uh, there are a lot of things that I want to jump into here. First of all, one session per week can be enough to to in increase your strength and uh, and gain the benefits from strength training. Uh, from the research that I've seen, which is mostly strength training in endurance athletes, so concurrent training, most of these research studies seem to always be centered around a two-day-per-week strength training program. So basically, based on that evidence, I've seen two days per week as being the norm. But obviously, that's not everything. There's research outside of the realm of endurance training, and there's the anecdotal evidence and what you see in practice. So I'm just wondering where this one day per week being enough comes from. Can you expand on that? Yeah, totally. So um, again, r research is a great sounding point, but often a lot of the things that research measure aren't necessarily based on some of the practical things that we have to deal with as triathletes. So for example, two sessions per week for some people can be fantastic and they've got time for that. Um, but as I alluded to, for, for some people that can be more um, of a challenge at the same time. And also some of the work um, that's done in those studies as a second session can be included as part of the plyometric or movement and drilling based work that I spoke about as part of a warm up. Um, but we realised, for example, going back to my, my days in, in, in professional rugby, with some of our with some of our players, we we were incredibly limited on time because the amount of matches they were playing, um, particularly international matches. I mean, rugby in essence is going into multiple car crashes every week and having to do that week on week for most weeks of the year. So we had to be able to figure out what the the minimum effective dose would be. And we illustrated initially, um, again, over years and collecting thousands of pieces of data from looking at strength changes through looking at increases in speed, power outputs, including on a watt bike, for example, 
that you could actually get improvements or at least maintenance in a very, very, very well-trained elite person with that one session per week. So when it came to working with a lot of triathletes, people in the endurance sports, myself included as well, the reality was is there had to be a solution that was less than having two pure gym contact sessions per week. And again, the main thing with that was figuring out, okay, okay, how within one contact, aside from the other bits that we spoke about that can be fitted into training, can we put in all the necessary things to make sure we get the outcome that we want? So as I said, usually that would incorporate doing two leg strength exercises, more exercises doesn't necessarily mean more results. It's what we usually refer to as the kitchen sink approach where people think, right, I'm going to go do five different leg exercises and vice versa. It makes it very hard to progress things and make them objective. But a lot of the, um, again, if we're looking at the data that we've collected, again, uh, through a whole range of abilities, for a whole range of ages, through people who have done strength training for before from people who haven't done strength training before as well. We know, for example, we can get significant improvements, not just in strength, but then we see significant improvements in maximal power output. So we also see significant improvements, again, particularly in average power outputs during um, fitness assessments and conditioning assessments that involve pushing very large intensities and very large power outputs intermittently, just like we would do, for example, if we were trying to um, improve our fatigue when we were cycling up hills or pushing very large gears as well. So we know the evidence is there, but if you did one session per week and the content wasn't right and the quality of the training wasn't right, it wouldn't work. But people train three or four times a week with gym-based training in other sports. And if they don't follow the right things and the quality is not there, again, they soon plateau as well. So again, it's, it's, it's real evidence and, and testament to the fact that the quality of the training is the, the absolute maximum thing. So every rep, every second of training is purely focused at making better as a triathlete as opposed to just trying to just see general gains in strength or general gym gains that most people want outside of sports. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good, uh, good, good, or that's a really good segment there uh, with uh, lots of information. I got interested in all of the things that you actually measure to as outcome measures for the success of your program. So you mm -hmm. mentioned uh, peak power and uh, power over different durations. Can you go into what durations though are those are obviously the the bike training <laughs> must have some impact yeah. on that as well it's not just strength training but what are other things that you measure as outcome measures do you do you measure the strength the weight lifted in specific sort of uh rep ranges or for different lifts and and tell us a little, little bit more about that basically about the outcome measures that you have so there's, there's a really good quote from um uh, an australian research from strength coach called um rob newsom and it's always stuck with me over the years. Um, and my, my, my original boss first presented it to us and he said, training equals testing, testing equals training. In other words, it means that if your training is structured really well, you're almost testing yourself every session because it's very easy to be able to track progress and to be able to make improvements and increments in the training that you're actually doing. So first of all, in terms of us being able to assess and see improvements in different measures, for example, power measurements and strength measurements is easy because we measure pretty much everything during training sessions. And that's actually really easy. It doesn't require fancy equipment or anything like that. You know, you can do it on a watt bike. You can do it using power meters. You can do it recording the sets and the reps and the load that you do. It just requires knowing just what to record. Anybody can do it. And that's the first of all, one of the key things to make sure that you, you can track genuine progress. Because otherwise, what happens is if, say, for example, um, Michael, you did 
your bike session today and you recorded your average power. And then let's say, for example, in two months, you decide, right, I'm going to redo that test again. But let's say the night before, um, you've had no sleep, you've gone on a night out and drank too much beer. The chances are that that test isn't going to be as good. Now, it's not actually because your fitness necessarily hasn't improved. It's because other variables are going to influence it. And that's a problem with what we call snapshot testing. Snapshot testing is testing things very infrequently. And consequently, then, it's very hard to actually see trends and improvements. But if we're tracking things in real simple ways, again, anybody can do session on session, you can take those outliers out and you can see the actual fundamental improvements. The second thing, and I think this is, again, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is so exciting because it's just not talked about, not just in triathlon, but particularly endurance sports when it comes to strength and conditioning. So when it becomes to, say, for example, measuring improvements in bike performance, which we know can correlate to improvements in the things that triathletes want. As I said, first of all, triathletes come to us not because they say, you know what, I can't cycle 40K or I can't cycle the, the Ironman distance. Usually it's the fact that they want to increase average power. They want to be able to improve minute-mile pace. That's where the magic's at. Now, normal conventional triathlon training, which is the, the paramount thing that we need to do, and I never deny that, a large proportion of that, based on how most people train, including uh, elite people, is a lot of that training is focused about the delivery of oxygen to muscles. Now, that's traditional aerobic fitness, what we call central aerobic fitness, and that's critical. You know, you have to do that. It, it's paramount. So I'm not downplaying that at all. And that usually comes from doing um, long interval work, um, you know, tempo rides, long steady runs, all the things that are important in a triathlon program. However, when it comes to people actually saying, well, I've hit a plateau and more miles isn't equaling more progress and vice versa, we know one physiological thing that isn't being trained is something that we call peripheral aerobic fitness. And again, this was something that um, we originally discussed um, in professional rugby union, um, particularly with the likes of uh, Professor David Bishop, who's a a superb researcher um, out in Australia, he's done a lot of work in cycling. And The difference with that compared to what I said before is whereas traditional aerobic fitness is about the delivery of oxygen to the muscles and improving that, peripheral aerobic fitness is about training the body. So once the oxygen gets to those muscles, the muscles have the best ability to be able to utilize that oxygen. And to be able to allow the body to adapt to do that requires a slightly different approach to training, or should I say requires you to include training, which is going to add that on to the bits that you're doing already, which are super important. And we know the thing that drives that peripheral aerobic fitness is intensity. And it's usually intensity way beyond what most endurance people are used to. So for example, when it comes to pedaling big gears, so really pushing the boundary with minute mile pace or vice versa, when it comes to trying to improve power on hills, the things that just are always being told to us when people first come to us triathletes, we know that the thing that can fundamentally improve that alongside their overtraining that they're not doing is improving this peripheral aerobic fitness because the large limiting factor is their fact to be able to sustain very large intensities under fatigue. So going back to your question of how might we do that on a bike, first of all, the bike test that we do in theory would include no more than about five minutes of work, three to five minutes. The key thing is the intervals would be relatively short. There'd be less than 30 seconds. 
they'd use very large gearing. So if you're familiar with a watt bike, you might use air resistance 10 with a magnet of five. So your cadence is going to be low, but your intent to produce power and intensities is going to be incredibly high. And what we do with that then is we'll look at the average power that somebody can optimally sustain over a given number of intervals using those very large resistances because that's a very, very strong measure of this thing that we were talking about called peripheral aerobic fitness. And it's why we're huge advocates of, particularly in the winter and certain areas of your training cycle, being able to add in alongside your conventional triathlon training very intense, short, sharp work using interval training, a bit like I mentioned there. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's at a cellular level what we're looking at really there is to mm -hmm. uh, recruit a large amount of muscle fiber and making sure that we can use the uh, the fast twitch fibers, which uh, might typically in a beginning endurance athlete or an, an even a very, very experienced endurance athlete that has been doing mostly low intensity training for a long time and hasn't been doing the proper structured intensity, they might be completely unavailable to them from the pool of muscle fibers to use in that sort of work. But you're trying to measure, I guess, how much of that additional pool of muscle fibers you can, you can bring into that cycling performance. It, absolutely. And the, an analogy that we like to use for, for, for this is that imagine imagine you've got a, v, a V8 engine. So you've got eight cylinders. So all the muscles in your legs, let's say they come to eight cylinders, just like in a car. For people who haven't done strength training, they'll say, for example, be using five cylinders. So you've got an eight cylinder engine, but you're using five cylinders. Now, a big adaptation of strength training, which can only be achieved via doing strength training, again, going back to the initial argument against what you can just get it from doing the sport, a big adaptation is the improvement to be able to recruit, like you said. So in other words, the ability for nerves to be able to turn on muscles to a larger degree. And that's then what from doing strength training allows you to go from using five of your eight cylinders to using eight of your eight cylinders. And notice how I've said the size of the engine doesn't change. With the type of strength training that you do for triathlon is it will not allow your muscles to increase in size, but what it will allow you is to maximize and make greater use of the muscles that, and like you said, the pool of muscle that you've got available to maximize and improve the amount of power output that you've got. And that's why strength training to increase power isn't just about increasing your power for a six second sprint when you're really fresh. That's why we know improvements. I mean, there was a really good research, um, a research paper from I think around about five, around about five six years ago, um, from a research called uh, Ronestad, and that basically illustrated how those who use strength training were able to see favourable improvements in things like power output, in heart rate, and in blood lactate over the course of I think it was around about a three hour steady state cycle. But then also be able to, after that, do a time trial where they're able to perform 10% greater than if they had the group that hadn't done strength training. So, again, that's quite a nice little research example, again, to show the thing that you've spoke about there as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I remember that paper. It's, uh, it's one of the seminal ones in the, in the field. Uh, yeah, let's go back to one more question about the, the topic of time budgeting here. At what point, if uh, many athletes can get away with doing just one gym-based session per week, at what point do you think that it might make sense to do two sessions uh, per week in the gym? Is it based on time available or is it based on the athlete and their abilities and, and limitations in general? So I think to answer, I, I really like this question because it talks about time. And um, as a coach, 
often a lot of people will say the limiting factor that stops them from doing something or doing more of something is time. But actually, that's that's not really the question. It's value. So I always kind of say, you know, when you go on holiday, you've got a bag limit in terms of weight. It's usually, what, 20, 25 kilos on an aeroplane. And what you do is naturally you will fill that suitcase with the things that you value most based on where you're going on holiday and what you're doing. And the things that you don't put in that suitcase are things that they might be nice, they might be cool, but you don't quite value them as much. And it's exactly the same when it comes to training. People will usually consider and be aware of different things that they can do and whatnot. And actually, the, the, the time could be available. But whether they do it or not will be based on do they value that thing enough? Do they believe in that thing enough to be able to include that in their suitcase, for example, to include that in their 24 hours a day? So I think one of the biggest things that anybody wants or should ask themselves when it comes to finding time to do things with their, their triathlon training and how much time they spend on the three disciplines or in this case, fourth discipline as well, it comes down to actually the value in it can provide. So people who, for example, um, do two strength training sessions per week who we might see who, so fundamentally going back to that original question, might spend in total an extra hour and 15 minutes per week um, doing pure strength training and then the other bits just filter into their warm-up routines and whatnot. They're people typically who do have a little bit more time, don't get me wrong, but they know and can see the value from doing strength training early on in terms of what it can provide them with from a performance perspective, um, from an injury perspective as, as well at the same time. So I don't necessarily think there's kind of a magic point of if you train this many hours per week, you can do this much strength training. And if you do this many hours per week, then you can do more. I think the fundamental thing that it will always come down to is actually how much you actually value that thing based on the context of your life. So on the flip side of it, for example, you know, I've got a wife, I've got three kids. I value them more than my triathlon training. Now, some people might not, and if they don't, that's absolutely fine. So consequently, when it comes down to me figuring out time to spend swimming, for example, with my triathlon training, I have to balance that out against how much I value the time doing that based on how much I value spending time with my wife and kids as well. So there's a whole host of things to consider, but I think that kind of suitcase analogy really explains really well a very effective way to think about actually how you spend your time doing your training and actually doing what well sort of but but also equally i think that we still need to we, we need to know how to make that evaluation and that prioritization so if time is not the uh, the limiting factor there you must have a sort of decision tree or something that you uh, if you if an, an athlete comes to you a client comes to you and they they're looking for your guidance on, on how to incorporate strength training, what sort of uh, thought process do you go through to, to assess whether they need to do, whether one session per week in the gym is enough for them or whether they might actually benefit from doing two sessions per week? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, first and foremost, we'll always say that look, look, we're really good at what we do, but we're, <laughs> we're not miracle workers. So as, as a bare minimum, as a, a minimum effective dose, strength training is per session once a week. That has to be there. Then really from there, it's about, about, I think, saying that, look, you know, doing a second session can be additive. Um, however, it's not a prerequisite. And what I usually would say to people is if, the, if they feel particularly to start with, I think it's better to start off with doing one gym-based session per week, obviously then adding in your plyometric stuff into your warm-up, adding in your mobility work in and around that away from there. 
And then if you actually find and feel that the value of that and the time that you have available based around the rest of your training is suitable, well, then that's maybe when you can add in doing an extra gym-based session per week at the same time. So with people, I'm always very honest and probably just say to them, look, you know, err on the side of caution maybe to begin with. And if you don't feel like you've bit off more than you can chew, well, then absolutely you can move forward to, to doing two sessions. But there are some people who are just that enthusiastic, that switched on, and feel that, you know, they have that. I mean, there's a lady who we coach called Margaret, you know, she's retired now. Um, she's done numerous Ironmans. Um, she's, she's, she's a superb trainer. And for her, straight away, it's like, no, I've got the time. I can see the value. I'm just going to go and do two. But I think a bit of advice for people would be is that if you are unsure about time availability and stuff like that, focus on one main gym-based session, strength session per week. And then, as I said before, adding in the other bits that you do to make sure that transfers into your mobility, into your warm-ups and just your evenings at home. And again, that just makes then sure that you can at least build from there rather than bite off more than you can chew. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It, it always makes sense to start start on, on the side of caution and, and then build. I, I totally agree with that, with that approach. Um, so let's... Uh, Look at the, the the pieces of the strength training program then. So if you start with the gym-based session, what you've alluded to some of the exercises that you do already, but can you go into some detail on, on what exercises you would prefer to have, have in there and how to structure that session? Okay, yeah. Um, so when we're looking at the lower limb, so your legs, um, the, re- the reason why we have to train legs, I mean, people might think it's obvious, but fundamentally movement during a lot of, well, our three disciplines is governed by extending our hip, our knee and our ankle. And consequently, therefore, we need to use lower body exercises which strengthen our legs when our legs extend through our hips, our knees and our ankles to make sure that, again, we're training the right muscles and we're going to get as much transfer as um, possible from what we're doing from the exercise to actually, again, swim, bike and run at the same time. So, Typically, we'd say that having one, what we call bilateral lift, a bilateral lift is basically where both feet are in contact with the floor or a foot plate, for example, if you're on a a leg press. So it's a stable, balanced exercise. So one of the exercises would typically be bilateral in nature. So examples would be things like, I don't know, squats, hex bar deadlifts, leg press, just very general examples there. The other thing then for a secondary exercise then would be what we'd call a unilateral exercise. So a single leg exercise that can include things like um, split squats, reverse lunge, Bulgarian squats. There's a whole host of things. And again, that's trying to try and make sure again that alongside that um, bilateral work, we're using something again that's got a lot of good transfer because again, when we're running, cycling and we're swimming, we've got a lot of unilateral movement. The only reason we include the bilateral stuff to begin with usually is, first of all, there's good evidence and theory to say that the more balance and stability we've got from having two feet in the floor allows us to overload our strength better. And then obviously from doing the unilateral work, we still get in that um, single leg work that can allow that to transfer better. But secondly, a lot of triathletes who are new to strength training can initially struggle with a lot of single leg exercises. and They can do them, but in terms of doing them with the quality that's required can be problematic. Um, And therefore, again, if we're just throwing in loads of single leg exercises, the chances are quality won't be there. And again, that's when people can um, start to, you know, get little aches and pains in certain places. But generally speaking, we want two lower body exercises, one bilateral, one unilateral that include movement through the hip, 
the knee and fundamentally the ankle at the same time. So that'd be from a lower limb perspective where we'd start. Another area then that's really often overlooked is pulling based exercises. Now, the, the obvious one is because of stroke power to do with swimming. So things like uh, chin-ups, pull-ups, pull-downs, there's a whole host of things. Again, um, a good scientific paper was looking at those who typically have greater strength during those types of movements as swimmers usually incur less shoulder-based injuries as well. And again, we know the prime muscle that allows us to create power when we pull through the water is latissimus dorsi. And essentially, that's the muscle that we use when we do overhead pulling work. But also, pulling work has other benefits that are never spoken about. So one of them is a lot of shoulder and neck issues, particularly from the cycling element and swimming element of your triathlon, usually come from inadequate pulling strength, or should I say strength in muscles that you train when you do pulling work. So a lot of people are really dominant in their upper trapezius muscles, and they use that to create a lot of movement through their shoulders, when actually they need to be able to develop strength in their middle, their lower trapezius muscles, maybe their rhomboids, to be able to balance their shoulders out and create stability. So instantly, that's the thing that we know if we're doing pulling work as well for the um, swim stroke benefits, it's also going to help to prevent shoulder and neck issues that we get when we're swimming um, and we're cycling as well. And the final one is, is, is to do with power transfer. If you imagine when you're gripping the handlebars on your bike, particularly when you're at the saddle, your ability to support and anchor yourself into the handlebars is pivotal because apart from your feet that are cleated into the pedals, the other point that's giving you stability is your strength through your hands into the handlebars. Now, a lot of people, again, because they haven't got strength through certain muscles that you develop when you do pulling exercises, will rely heavily, again, just on their upper trapezius muscles, their forearms, and they'll fatigue quickly. But if we can get, again, latissimus dorsi stronger, other areas through the back, middle and lower trapezius muscles, it allows us to stabilize ourselves a hell of a lot better. And in theory, that could link in with us being able to transfer power and transfer energy better down through the body into the pedals as well. So that's a few reasons why we'd include pulling-based work, not just overhead pulling work, but particularly horizontal pulling work. Examples of horizontal pulling work, uh, fingers like um, horizontal cable pulls, uh, good quality bent over rows, prone row exercises. The final one that I'll touch on, because I don't want to just keep talking and I can segment off where you want, is the core. The core is probably the one thing that people are most aware of, but it's probably one of the most poorly understood and explained areas to do with strength and endurance performance, particularly triathlon. And as an example, um, I'm going to use a guy who uh, who does Olympic triathlon, who we coach. He came to us with back and Achilles problems. And the fundamental reason that caused that is that when you looked at him run, his um, back would hyperextend, which basically just means it overarches. And consequently, that meant when his foot hit the ground, it, 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 the, the foot contact was too far ahead of his body. That loaded his Achilles tendon more. And obviously, the hyperextended position in his lower back, that caused his back problems. So core training was one of the key things that would allow him to get to where he's at now, where that isn't a problem. The problem is, is though, is that while general core exercises like planks and things like that are great and we would encourage you to use them, what they're not going to do is allow you to transfer that core strength very well into swim, bike and run. So what we use a lot of are core exercises as well that are what we call, what we call dissociation exercises. We've done loads of videos for this on Tritonaceous, but to explain it, it's essentially 
it's all well and good having the strength in your torso, your abs, if you like, to be able to stabilize your spine. But the other skill that you need to have is to be able to use that strength when your hip moves. Because a lot of people, when they move their hip, they'll also move their back. And that's a key thing that causes a lot of problems when it causes, um, not just with lower back and Achilles, but also efficient body position to be able to run more economically. So exercise is um, a, a real well-known one. is something like a dead bug, which is where you lie on your back, you lock your core into the floor, and you slowly move one leg at a time. It looks really simple, but to do right, it's really difficult. So with core training, yes, things like developing your general strength during things like planks, side planks, pal-off presses using bands can be great. But I'd really recommend people um, accompany that with what we call dissociation core work, which is using and overloading your core during movements while your hips move. And again, people can see loads of examples for that on you know Instagram page and stuff like that. So they're kind of just three quick areas um, that I'd probably really highlight and recommend first and foremost for people to consider. So, so two leg exercises, and uh, would you have one or two pulling exercises in uh, in the program or in in the workout? I, uh, generally speaking, obviously depends a little bit. I'm generally speaking, probably one pulling based exercise, and then probably one to two core based exercises. Um, it's common for people to think of strength, and again, a lot of strength training programs that people will see online. They contain, again, what we call the kitchen sink. And the kitchen sink is just, right, this exercise, that exercise, that exercise, that exercise. In essence, the exercise is just a tool to create a response and an adaptation, a change in our body that's going to improve us in all the things that we spoke about for triathlon. So it makes sense for us to be able to select the best tools for a given training cycle and to focus on those rather than trying to spread that over dozens of exercises. Because one of the things that then creates is the ability to have to try and learn multiple techniques for multiple exercises. It also means that people are more prone then to have much more greater delayed onset muscle soreness, which obviously you don't want tons of if you're going out running, cycling or swimming in the evening, maybe after a session as well. So most training sessions in terms of strength-based work, I'd suggest in general to include no more than five to six strength exercises maximum, which again might sound a little bit, oh, doesn't sound like much. But again, it's a prime example of the quality that surpasses the quantity. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what about the, the types of reps and weights used uh, and uh, how you periodize that, I guess, through the time that an athlete starts working with you and maybe they start working in at this time of year, we're recording here early December, so sort of the base training phase and they, assuming that they are a Northern Hemisphere-based athlete and are racing in, let's say, June through, June through September, uh, how, how do you progress that and work that into the program? So rep ranges, I think, is a really interesting um, topic, particularly when it comes to, to triathlon. I, I mean, I wrote an email about it the, the, the other day. Um, and the main reason is, is if you just look on the internet, some people might say, right, you want to do high reps at higher intensity. And some people might say, no, you don't want to do that because it'll make you too big. And you want to do um, lower intensity and more reps. But then some people might say, well, that's going to make you, you you big and you don't want to be like that. The reality is, first of all, from a scientific perspective, we know that the, the higher the intensity, so the lower the reps, because if you're, if you're lifting more weight, intensity is just weight. If you're lifting more weight, you obviously aren't going to be able to do as, much re- as many reps. We know that fundamentally, the, the, the fewer reps we do and the higher intensity we lift, um, the more 
potentially the body's going to adapt to improving the things that we spoke about, about recruiting muscles better, being able to innovate, get the timing of those muscles better to improve things like the strength and power we've discussed. But there's a big caveat with that. And it's that training and strength training and lifting heavy like that, it's a real skill. And it's a skill that takes time. And it's a skill actually that to begin with, um, and for, for a lot of people actually, you don't necessarily have to do. So there's a lot more research, um, particularly over the last several years, that looks at the influence of um, intent. Um, You might call it more explosive type movements when it comes to strength training, rather than just saying, right, we're going to load it up to a really intense weight and we're going to scrape out, I don't know, four sets of four. Instead, what we might do is the same exercise. So it might be a back squat, for example. Um, Again, we're still going to use a sufficient intensity and weight. It's not going to be as heavy, but we're still going to make sure as we come out of the bottom of the squat, we're going to move with as much intent and power as we can. And again, there's good evidence to show that in, in, in a whole range of different types of athletes, including endurance athletes, that as long as intent is there when it comes to actually the concentric part of the movement, which is basically when the muscle shortens, it's basically often when you usually come out of the bottom of a movement, as long as the intent's there, we'll still get very good adaptation in the things that we've been speaking about. So with a lot of triathletes, particularly to begin with, we're not going to be working at very low reps using very um, large intensities because skill isn't there to be able to do that. But what we will do to make sure that we get the adaptations that, that we require is we'll still make sure that the intent to move the bar or the object is there um, at the same time. And even if we are using slightly higher repetitions, the fact that we're not doing four or five training sessions a week in the gym, the fact that we're not using certain types of maybe more bodybuilding exercises, the fact that we're doing all this endurance stuff on the side as well is going to mean still we don't have to worry at all about any increases in the weight or size of a muscle that sometimes um, people do. Um, but as people get more able, that's then where we can start to utilise maybe doing more heavier traditional strength work, which some people like because it's a really good challenge and it's something fresh as well at the same time. Um, and regarding what you said about timing of the year as how you might use those, we've actually, scientifically in theory, the the, the the approach has always been you keep the intensity of an exercise, you keep the weight the same, but you reduce the volume, so you reduce the reps, similar to how you would do with traditional endurance training. But we know through working with many endurance and triathlete-based people that there sometimes is still a worry and, you know, that heavy leg feeling sometimes you can have going into a deload week because your body's used to doing loads and suddenly it's doing nothing. They're still apprehensive. So we've actually deloaded in other ways, which has included sometimes um, taking the edge off the weight a little bit, still keeping good intensity, but reducing it a little bit, still reducing the reps a little bit, but maybe not quite as much as we would have if we'd really um, kept the weight high, but still making sure we keep the intent. And that's been a very, very successful thing we've um, used at the same time. So the overriding theme is regardless of the time of the year, you still need to strength train because strength starts to dissipate if you don't train within seven days. It's just like anything else that you train. And as long as the intent remains the same and you're looking at recording your reps and sets and weights so you know where things should be at, We know that, again, there's a whole variety of ways that we can look at improving the qualities that we spoke about, but they're probably a couple of the main things that I'd suggest that people consider.
Yeah, really good. What about uh, I actually recorded a, a Q and A episode uh, or released a Q and A episode uh, just a few weeks ago. By the time that this episode goes live, so but yesterday by the time of this recording, <laughs> about uh, doing uh, your strength training completely home based, and uh, I would like to hear your take on that. Is it possible? And if so, what sort of equipment uh, would you use and need for that? So um, I think it's really easy too early for, for, for a large number of people. Um, who are new to proper, when I say proper strength training, I mean professionally structured strength training, following a specific program, for example, for a specific purpose like triathlon. A lot of the time they won't be, be to, to begin with be pushing around big, big weights. Um, so consequently the need to have machines and all these sorts of different bits and pieces just isn't there. I mean, I, if you look, for example, a, a photo of our training facility, we virtually have like no like machines or anything like that it's all very much three free weight based work um bands whole host of things um so i think certainly to begin with it's a lot easier for people to be able to um do strength training at at home um but there does become a point because obviously we know um, the way the human body works. We need to progressively overload. If we don't progressively overload something, the body stops adapting. And the way we progressively overload with strength training isn't just through increasing reps. There becomes a point where we don't want to increase the reps anymore. We need to increase the intensity, and that comes from increasing the weight. So with, with anybody, there will become a point where they start to need to be able to use external load. Now, for some people, they might have a garage at home where they can get themselves a nice little power cage. You know, you see people on Instagram with them, um, a barbell, some weights, and that can work really, really well. Equally, some people, they might just go to, you know, just um, a, a gym that's got three weights um, and still have the access to equipment that they need relatively inexpensive without the need for all fancy bits and pieces and uh, and whatnot. So in terms of accessibility to be able to do strength training, yes, you know, if you've got space over time to be able to get some equipment in at home, it can be done. It certainly can be done. But also for a lot of people as well, they might already have kind of gym memberships and, what, and, and whatnot. And it's surprising, again, um, what little kit they might use. But again, having um, access to a gym does mean that, the scope to be able to do certain things does become a, um, a little bit bigger as well at the same time. So for that one kind of definitely one to two strength, proper strength training sessions per week we spoke about, there does need to be the ability eventually over time to be able to probably have access to things like um, barbell, kettlebell, bands, benches, probably a power rack that could be purchased for, for home relatively inexpensively, or again, can be easily accessed um um, at top, pretty much any gym nowadays. Gyms have evolved quite a bit, whatnot. Um, and then obviously the, the, the other bit that we spoke about, the transfer work earlier on and whatnot, of course, as we said, that could be done at home. The mobility work could be done at home. And the transfer work you can do, as we said, it was part of bike warm-ups um, or you could do it as part of your running warm-up as well. So the practicality can be high. It's just making sure, again, that it's not the kitchen sink you know, you don't need to be doing 20, 30 different exercises. You don't need BOSU balls everywhere and stuff like that. But it is, again, making sure that you are doing the right things and you are doing them in the right way. Yeah. And uh, let's go into those other uh, aspects of the weekly strength training. So the transfer uh, transfer exercises and uh, the, the warm-up, uh, the biometrics and, uh, and the mobility work. So can you just summarize them what else than the gym-based session should most athletes be doing in a week and and just briefly what is that work what, what does it consist of yeah 
So uh, if, starting with the, the kind of transfer work, we just call it transfer because it's making sure the improvements in strength that we're making from our more purest strength training is starting to really transfer to the, the movements that we do when we perform triathlon and also the way the muscles behave and the characteristics of how our body operates as well during swim, bike and run. And as I said, a classic example is something like plyometric exercises. Although, again, I always put a big disclaimer with that. A lot of people, if you're not already into a good solid strength training program and done other things prior to plyometric training, the, the benefits you'll get for plyometric training will be relatively small. Um, and there's also a bit of a risk in terms of, you know, I remember as a teenager doing plyometric training, I pulled my ITPs twice because I didn't have sufficient gluteal strength. Um but that type of work it usually involves things like, and again, we've done a ton of videos on this, but um, things like A-walking work, so basically slow um, slow movements in running postures where you're having to use your strength to stabilize your body and your joint. Then we can progress that into more marching work, which again is moving your, your legs, your hips, your knees, and your ankles during movements, which are very similar to um, obviously when you're running. And again, that's then a bit more reactive because you're marching and you've got sharper ground contacts. And then that can progress into things like skipping drills, hopping drills. There's, there's a whole host of things, but essentially to making sure, again, the strength that we've been able to gain from our gym-based work is being able to be used in very, very hundreds of milliseconds, very short windows, because that's how we need to be able to use it, for example, when we run. With cycling, transfer work can come into um, sprint-based work. So one thing that we do, for example, is to get people to perform maximal sprints over the space of maybe six to seven seconds. Again, when, when we first look at triathletes and we put them on a bike and we say, right, sprint as hard as you can for six to seven seconds, you look at them and you, you know they think they're going as hard as they can. But you can tell by the way the body's moving that there's other gears. And again, that comes down to that recruitment factor that we spoke about. You know, the, the ability's there. It's a bit like a dormant volcano. The ability's there, but it hasn't fully erupted and we're not making for active use of it. So using that transfer work to do sprints on the bike, again, can make sure that as we've improved strength in the other areas of our legs to improve our cycling performance, we're making sure that they really get tuned to the positions, the joint angles and the range of emotions that we use when we're cycling. Finally, then with mobility work, um, there was really good video, actually. I think I put it on Instagram yesterday that we did on mobility for swimming. And the problem with mobility is, is usually people, and I totally get this, you know, I was exactly the same and it, it makes sense. People just say, right, if, if I just stretch anywhere, it's going to be good. But Take me, for example, um, when I was 14, uh, I was laying turf in my garden with my dad and I had a back spasm. Um, and ever since I've had to manage my back, it's absolutely fine, but I've had to be considered with it. Now, one thing I have is ridiculously tight hamstrings. And the reason for that is, is because since I pull my back, my hamstrings are very active. They're very short. And it's something that allows me to create and keep stability in my spine and keep my back okay. If I stretch my hamstrings, it makes my lower back worse. In contrast, we coach a guy called Richard who stretches his hamstrings and he's more than happy. So stretching the right areas for the demands and objectives of swim, bike and run is absolutely critical. So with this swimming one we did the, the other day as one example, we spoke about how one of the limiting factors of being able to, particularly when you bilaterally breathe, um, to be able to get the rotation you require is, is your thoracic rotation. So the thoracic spine is the bit usually where our shoulder blades is. It's just above our lower back and it's below our neck. 
If you can't rotate effectively to your thoracic spine, secondly, you're going to probably over-rotate directly in your shoulder joint, which is usually a recipe for developing things like swimmer's shoulder, frozen shoulder, and things like that. And you're also probably going to over-rotate a little bit through your lumbar spine, which again is one of the reasons why people can develop back problems when they swim. So <laughs> with the mobility work, it's making sure that when we do that, it's specific to improving the mechanics and the skills that we're trying to develop to improve our triathlon performance as well. And how and when do you incorporate these things to transfer work and the mobility work? Let's say we are a triathlete. We do uh, three swims and bikes and runs per week, and we do one gym-based session. Uh, in what sessions do you include uh, the transfer work and the mobility work or in conjunction with what sessions? Can, can you just give use an example here with, with this triathlete? So a, a real common example would be, first of all, as, as we said earlier, on the mobility work, small amounts than frequently is the key. Five minutes, you know, four four days a week, every day is a very small amount. But again, you can just do that in front of the telly. You can do it while listening to something on the radio. It, it doesn't have to take up extra time. So it's a very easy way to do it. Secondly, as well, we do incorporate a lot of mobility work into our rest periods as well when we do our strength training. So again, it's a very practical way to fit that in. In terms of the transfer work, this is the work that fundamentally usually we fit into um say just for example your um your your running warm-up so say for example you're going to go out and, and and do i don't know it could be a threshold run for example just off the top of my head usually again people will go through just very general random non-specific warm-up drills but instead if we're doing this transfer work not only do we get the benefits that i spoke about about making sure that our strength transfers to what we need but they also work incredibly well as very good things to warm up and prepare your body for the demands of what you're about to do for your training session. So again, it's a very practical way to get that work in without actually having to add extra time into your training regime. Some of the transfer bits as well, we do sometimes put in the gym work as well. So for example, some of the bike sprint work, for example, we might do that as part of one of the exercises in the gym. But fundamentally, the best way to think about it is you've got your pure strength work, which is what you do in your gym-based session. You've got your mobility work that you can just do um, at home. You can do it by the size of the pool, whatever it is, really practical. And then the transfer work is something that we can do once per week sometimes two but most people just once a week and we can use that as part of a warm-up for one of the things that you would be doing anyway which might be something for example like one of your runs got it perfect and uh, another question that uh, comes up all the time is uh, how do you position your especially the gym-based training uh to in uh, into your triathlon training program should it be the the last session of the day or or how do you think about about that like basically where to place it in uh, in conjunction with the endurance training should you should you space it out or or how should you think about that yeah i mean we we had a lot of discussions about this again back in professional um, rugby there was a lot of research starting to come out kind of looking at well when you're doing endurance training and strength training what's the best way to, to do them do you do the one before the other or we do it the other way around um and and that helped inform a lot, a lot of what what we've done but um at the, at the same time since the evidence isn't necessarily um concrete to say one way or the other but i think the the, the biggest factor the, the the biggest factor with this again is practicality um we are, i often use a quote and say that when it comes to things like this if you try and create your program to be a hundred percent perfection it will practically work very little of the time 
if you set your training regime to be in this type of example, 90% perfection, it will work 100% of the time. So for a lot of people, we say, look, the most important thing to get the improvements that you want is first of all, just to make sure you're getting the strength training in. Now, if you're somebody who's got the time, the flexibility to be able to play around with fitting it in at certain points, that's a luxury. And that might give you an extra two or 3%. But fundamentally, the thing that is going to get you the benefits is just doing it in the first place. And sometimes people can talk them out themselves out of doing something like strength training. because I think, well, I can't do it there because I'm doing that after and vice versa. It doesn't have to be the case at all. Again, with a, a properly professionally put together program, it will be accounted for that you will be doing other training sessions. It will be accounted for that we're trying to limit delayed onset muscle soreness and those other things. But if we are looking in a perfectionist way and we are saying, right, we can train like an elite athlete um, and, and whatnot, in essence, the strong science to show that the, the last session that you do of a day, because there isn't anything immediately after that will mean that the adaptation won't get diluted. So for example, if I did my strength training session in an evening and then I went home, had my dinner and went to bed, there's no competing training to dilute the physiological changes that are going to happen in my body to make me better. There's there's a practical problem with that though, and that's psychology. (laughs) And it's something that we all have as athletes. For some people, um, doing a heavy run session in the morning and then doing a strength training in the set session in the evening, they might be absolutely fine with. But for other people, the thought of being able to do that because, I don't know, maybe they perceive the delayed onset muscle soreness to be a significant thing, maybe because they get very heavy-legged after certain activities. For them, the thought of doing that is just like, I don't care what you tell me about the science, I just ain't going to do it. That fundamentally will mean, again, going back to what I said, that, yeah, in the grand scheme of things then, Maybe doing strength training work earlier on in the day before more, maybe one of your more taxing sessions is something that's going to be better for you. So I think it's a really good um, a question and topic where science can inform us, but unfortunately the, the human and the triathlete um, isn't black and white. It's not a, uh, a research study. It's, uh, it, it's got feelings, it's got emotions, and we have to cater for those in our considerations in how we actually apply strength training. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Absolutely, the, that practicality comes first and the most important thing is getting it done and then everything else is just gravy. Personally, I've tried it both ways and I do find that I I gravitate towards doing the, tra- the strength training last because I just feel that I can do a lot of hard training during a day and still get in a quality strength training session as the last session of the day. But if I do even just one strength training session in the morning and then I have only one other session that later that day, that other session, whether it's a, a quality bike or run or swim, I always feel that it's quite severely compromised. I, I just get that little bit of extra, I guess, uh, staleness. I wouldn't call it soreness at that mm-hmm. point, but uh, just feeling a bit stale and flat, I guess, after the, the strength training. So I just think that to maximize the quality of the workout, for me, what works best is to do the, the endurance training earlier and the, the strength training later. But uh, but again, it all comes down to what, what is practically possible for, for the individual athlete and, and just getting it done in, in that way first and foremost. And then after that, you can play around and see what, what feels the best for you. But I also think that, as you say, the evidence is a bit inconsistent, or I should say that I guess it points towards the fact that if you want the most benefits from your strength training and endurance training, first of all, do them eight hours apart, but also maybe do the strength training as the first session of the day if you want to 
maximize that because then you're fresh compared to doing it as a second session after a hard run or bike, then you're not as fresh and you're not reaching that 100%. But again, we're talking about perfection there and that's not really practical or the reality of, of almost any athlete. We all always have to make these trade-offs. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You, all, all the points you made there are, are excellent. And it's, uh, it's, it's the famous saying, it's, it's, as we say, horses for courses. And there's plenty of triathletes I know who are very much like you around um, strength training later on and doing other bits earlier on. And there's plenty I know who are the complete opposite as well um, at the same time. But as you said, the most important thing is, is the work gets done in the first place. And then the, the extra icing on the cake that might give three or four percent. Well, if it can get done, great. But if not, the most important thing is we've got the other 96% done in the first place. Yeah. Final question before the rapid fire questions. What do you think are the most common mistakes that uh, endurance athletes make when it comes to strength training? Okay. Um, I, and I say these not as a judgmental coach. I say these as someone who earlier on in my life did exactly the same thing. So I, I'm, I'm part of everybody else. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a triathlete myself, so I'm not, I'm not preaching. But the first one I, I've, I've kind of mentioned already, it, it's, it's poor technique. And technique is there, yes, partly for safety so we don't get injured. But, I mean, we, we did an in-house research study many years ago at, at, at Leicester which looked at um, different types of technique um, on a certain type of exercise and how it could load the muscle. And from that, we were able to indirectly kind of determine how effective these different techniques would be at improving strength. And fundamentally, it, it consistently showed that poor form in certain ways um, would dilute the response. So it would dilute the benefits of the training. And it's a big reason, again, why people might start strength training, feel like they're improving, and then they hit a plateau. And it's because the technique is putting them in a position where they're actually not strengthening and they're not actually improving the strength in the muscles that they're trying to target. So a really good example actually might be something like, I'll give you two. One might be um, something like a hip lift exercise, lying on your back, pushing your hips up or a hip thrust. It looks so simple, but a common thing is people will use their back extensors, their lower back to really assist the movement and the hamstrings. And actually they won't use their gluteal muscles very well. The whole purpose of that exercise is to target the gluteal muscles. Now, if we use really good technique and people can understand how to do it in the right way, we load the right muscles and we strengthen the right muscles and we see consistent gains and improvements. But if we don't do that, there becomes a point where those other muscles, they're, they're not the target muscles. So consequently, our improvement will plateau on off. And actually the benefits that we're looking for that exercise for our triathlon aren't really going to be there in the first place. So again, it's getting out that mindset a little bit of, you go running, you go cycling, you go swimming, and because you do lots of, of, of pedals and lots of runs on the floor um, and lots of arm movements and strokes, that you, you don't think about the detail as much when you do strength training, when one rep, one movement on strength training might take five seconds as opposed to a hundredth of a second. And that sounds really obvious, but it's a common thing we find, just that focus on form. So that would probably be one of the one, one of the big first things. The second thing would be not including appropriate strength work that transfers to triathlon-based movements. So a reoccurring theme of the things I've spoke about are it transferring to training the right muscles during the right movements um, in the right ways. 
and that, that comes down to fundamentally what you're doing in your program. And there's a whole host of things that will commonly be used, which they might get you stronger, but they ain't going to make you better at triathlon. Um, Can you give some examples of that? Just some, some common things you see. Yeah, I think so. A really good example, let's say, of, of an exercise whereby that transfer is really good is if we take something like, um, let's say, a Bulgarian squat. So just to explain that, it's where you have one foot on a bench behind you, the other foot you're standing on, so it's a single leg exercise. You slowly lower yourself down and then you punch up out the floor. That works tremendously because, yes, it's a single leg exercise, but we've got simultaneous movement, flexion and extension for your hip, your knee, and your ankle. It also, as well, requires you to heavily strengthen and utilize weak links within um, a triathlete's lower limb, particularly gluteal muscles. Um, a common example is you see the knee rolling, the gluteal muscles help rotate that knee out and keep good alignment. So instantly there's an exercise which makes perfect sense as, as to why we'd actually use it in the first place. An example of an exercise where that doesn't start to happen or occur in the first place would be something like, um, I'm going to use the example of Let's say a, a single leg squat movement. Now, a single leg squat can be a great exercise. Okay, so I'm, I'm not. Gonna, but what sometimes people will do is maybe a single leg squat exercise, whereby um, they're not really going through much range of motion. So again, the range of motion they're going through is limited, which means again they're not going to load the muscle appropriately to get the adaptations that we're talking about. Secondly, it's potentially for a lot of people quite an unstable exercise. So stability becomes a huge limiting factor rather than overloading strength itself in the first place as well. Um, and then secondly, then that means that the technique of the movement for a lot of people is, is beyond them again at the same time. So that's probably an example from a, um, a, a, leg, a leg training perspective. The other one would be from a core perspective, a bit like I said before. So things like sit-ups, crunches. With your core, the whole idea is you're developing strength prevent movement in your in your lower body or sorry in your in your lower back so if you imagine your lumbar spine your lower back your core works to stabilize it i always say it's a bit like having a big radio mast and you have the metal guy wires coming off it the metal guy wires stop the radio mast from getting blown over your lower back's the same the spine's the mast and the guy wires are all the muscles in your core now if we're doing strength training exercises which are actually creating movement through the lower back we're actually doing the opposite to what we're trying to do when we swim, bike and run. Because if we create excess movement when we're swim, biking and running for our lower back, it's a great recipe for injury. It's the biggest recipe for injury, actually, for lower back injuries. And secondly, it, it creates poor transfer of force through the body. So it reduces economy and efficiency. On the flip side, if we're doing core exercises, um, we could see, oh, use examples of things like planks, pal-off presses, some of the um, dissociation exercises, which hard to explain because they've got weird names people would have to see the videos but what we're doing there is we're using strength in the core but it's to stop movement in the lower back and they're two very different things but again two great examples of where maybe a very simple change somebody can make to actually make sure it transfers to what they're doing as opposed to, to not transferring the, the one real quick one i just want to mention is um running mechanics so i Take me, for example, swimming is my absolute nemesis um, in terms of disciplines. So working on technique has been a huge factor. But one of the biggest things that stops people being able to adopt certain techniques is there's physical limitations. So you can tell somebody all day long to get into certain positions, but because they haven't got the sufficient mobility, 
because they haven't got sufficient strength or sufficient stability in a joint, they, they just can't do it. So fundamentally, they need to be able to unlock those things first before they can improve the technical qualities. So take, for example, running mechanics. Real common things that we'll, we'll see coaches talk about are things like high knees. We, we, I put out a thing the other day saying, like, if there's something that you should never do when you're training running mechanics is high knees. And one of the biggest reasons is if you, if you actually look at what improves running performance for triathlon or distance running, you actually then can figure out what the mechanics are that you need to work on. So one of the things, say for example, I've spoke about there is your knee will only rise up off the floor based on the reaction of your foot hitting the floor in the first place. And it's why, for example, distance runners' knees won't come up as high in comparison to sprinters because a distance runner won't put as much force into the floor because they're not sprinting 100 metres. And what can then happen is if we're focusing on high knees, our standing leg then on the other side, which is the one that supports us, it puts us in an unfavourable position where our hip will usually drop and fall in and will actually create less stability. It also means we're probably going to arch for our lower back. So there's a whole host of things. So that's just one example with running mechanics where I think there's a lot of information that's put on out about do this and improve your running mechanics. But no one actually in the first place says, right, how will this improve what I'm trying to do to get better at my running? I objectively look at it. And then from there, then say, ah, and a drill to do that would be something like an A-walk, an A-skip, um, a certain type of plyometric drill. So I, I think understanding mechanics and how to improve them is, is, is a big area, an exciting area, I think, for triathlon of how we can all get a lot better and how people can start to open their eyes to improve their training to actually have bigger impacts on getting better on the swim, bike and run. Yeah, some, some personal anecdotes about these uh, mistakes that you pointed out. First of all, with the technique side of thing, I consider myself having a fairly good handle on technique. But one of the best things that I did this past triathlon season was to actually from the start of December of last year through January, February of 2019. So at the beginning of or the base, base training phase, so to say, I took regular uh, strength and conditioning personal training lessons with a really knowledgeable strength and conditioning coach in the particular in the running space. So somebody who's not, you know, a regular personal trainer at the gym, but more somebody like yourself yeah. with an expertise in working with that demographic. And that was really helpful. Even like the some of the things that that I could could correct in my technique that I had never even realized that I was doing doing incorrectly or at least suboptimally. That really <coughs> helped me get to another level with the, what I got out of the strength training. So that's something I would highly recommend. And also some of the things that uh, that we worked on and that I continued working on were some of the things that you mentioned with the the transfer in particular the transfer to to running uh, the the a walks and the the skipping etc also we did a lot of wall drills and that's something that i found mm -hmm. immensely valuable uh, to to minimize ground contact time and and uh, increase that force development over the very short hopefully 220 millisecond or or less ground con time that your foot will will be at the ground when you're running at race pace so uh, so, so those were a couple of just personal comments that uh, that go to that basically just agree with what you said. That some of those things that we can we can work on and include, they really do help performance at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean they're re they're really good points, and you just draw my memory. I think on I think one really good last example related to that. A common thing is with taking running mechanics is 
people will say, oh, I want to improve my running, then that they can see how they want to run, but they're not sure how to do it. Or a coach can kind of see, it doesn't look right, but they're not quite sure, you know, okay, how they're going to address it. So a, a big issue is, is ground contact to so where the foot contacts the floor. A common thing that we see is a lot of um, a lot of distance runners, triathletes, will usually contact the floor a little bit too far ahead. Now this makes sense because if you haven't got um, sufficient or maybe better hip strength, by striking slightly in front of you, you won't have to rely on your hip strength as much. So it's naturally a way that the body will work to get around a weakness there. Now, if we want to improve running mechanics, one of the things, one area that we can do is start to try and get people to learn how to strike a little bit more towards themselves, not directly under the body, but it feels like you're running under the body almost. But in essence, it's just ahead of yourself. But you can only do that if you strengthened your hips in the first place, because you're forcing your body to get into a position which it hasn't done before because it hasn't got adequate strength there. So the only way to get it into that position is to create strength in the first place of where the weak link is. And then from there, that's when you can start to build in your transfer work and your drills to address that technical element at the same time. It's the same thing as well when we look, if you're looking at yourself running head on, a typical thing that we'll see is what we refer to as knee knock. It's basically where the foot contacts the floor and the knee and the hip roll inwards. It's the most common thing that you'll see in any endurance runner. Again, we can try and tell a runner all day long, you need to keep your knee out, you need to do this. But fundamentally, the reason they can't do it is they lack the ability to create force, i.e. strength, through the external rotators in the hips, the gluteal muscles, the one that keeps the knee out. And we can talk to them until the cows come home about adjusting their technique. But unless they correct their underlying strength in the first place and then add on those technical drills, they're never going to be able to improve it in the first place. So it's, it's quite an exciting area because, again, it's, it's one that's not really talked about very much but can, ha- can have huge benefit. Yes, uh, that's. Uh, I think that's. Yeah, that's per- perfect. It's. Uh, it's really, uh, really valuable information, and I, I definitely agree with with all of that. Let's start to wrap up because we're going on, been going on for a long time already with the rapid fire questions. And uh, the first one is: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports or strength training? Uh, well, obviously, aside from this podcast and my own tritonaceous, um, it's actually a book by um, Daniel H. Pink called Drive. It's nothing to do with sport or triathlon, but it's to do with motivation. And it's uh, a book that I read that probably had and the initial biggest impact on what has made me probably a better coach over the last 15 years than anything else. Um, but also, I think it could be really good for athletes in terms of understanding themselves and, and motivation towards sport and training. And what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Um, I, if I'm being different, I'd say my mind, so my mindset, I'm, I'm not a great triathlete, but I work hard. So my mindset, but if I had to pick something a bit obvious and boring, probably I do like a bit of data. So my Garmin always keeps me up to speed with uh, interesting facts and figures that I can bore people to death with. And what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? Uh, if it's to do with triathlon and my own training, easy. Um, do more open water swimming. Um, as many of us, I've learned the hard way. Um, and it's yeah, a lesson that I've certainly learned from. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good one. And it's, but it's actually uh, one that hasn't really come up that often, if at all, in this question. Oh. So uh, good to bring that up. Uh, finally, where can the <laughs> listeners find out what you're up to and uh, find your uh, your social media, your website, etc.? 
Yeah, um, so we're, we do a lot of stuff on Instagram. So Tritonaceous, um, that's T-R-I, not Y. Tritonaceous, which is on um, Instagram. We also have a Tritonaceous YouTube page, which is similar, but has much more longer videos on about all the stuff we spoke about. Um, and then if people go to www.tritonaceous.com, um, we've got a, um, a, a free ebook that people can download, which really introduces all the things that we spoke about here um, and also real tips for, for training. It's 20 minute read really quick but it, it's the first real professional kind of ebook for strength and conditioning for triathletes that people can download for three so they're more than welcome to uh, to have a look over that as well brilliant i'll go ahead and look myself as well Fantastic. thank you so much david it's been great to to talk to you and uh, and uh, get to your insights into strength and conditioning for triathletes well absolutely pleasure thanks for having me I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As usual, you can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com and uh, you can also find links to related episodes. In fact, I have a page on the website where I've collected all of the episodes ever done on the podcast related to strength and conditioning. You'll find a link to that page there as well as, of course, in the episode description in your podcast player app. If you are on the website and you're interested in checking out the products and services that we offer, check them out. We have everything from ready-made training plans to individual coaching. So depending on your level and your budget, you can find something that is relevant for you. And for a bit of a general update, as I've been mentioning in the last couple of episodes, I am looking to uh, to redo, redesign the Scientific Triathlon website in early 2020. So if you're a professional in that area, then uh, please reach out to me, michael at scientifictraflon.com, and that's michael with a K, and we can discuss more about this project and if it's something that might be a good fit for us to start uh, working on. So looking forward to hearing from you and uh, give some more information if that if you think that that's something that might might be of interest to you. Today is Monday the 23rd of December and we'll be back on Thursday with a Q&A episode. But in the meantime, I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Enjoy time with your family. Enjoy some training if you want to or some time off if you prefer that. Uh, it's totally fine to take some time off for uh, Christmas and uh, just rest and relax and then get back to it in full swing and perhaps that might even be a much needed rest if you've been training hard up until now. Also enjoy the food, uh, don't uh, be too restrictive with that, and uh, enjoy the weather if you're lucky enough to live somewhere where you can do that. My personal preference would definitely be have, to have a snowy and white Christmas, but uh, being right now in the south of Finland, those Christmases are unfortunately few and far between these days with uh, the climate change and everything. So chances look a bit slim, but I'll keep my hopes up uh, that uh, we might have a white Christmas this year. But thank you uh, for listening throughout all this year. Of course, we have a few episodes still until the new year, but uh, I want to thank you already and wish you that Merry Christmas. And thank you and Merry Christmas also to our wonderful sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Get a free hydration plan that you can use in training and racing and get your first box or tube of electrolytes for free with the promo code DATTRAFLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Use the new promo code TTS20, TTS is all caps, to get 20% off your order of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear 
and make sure that you have all your equipment ducks in a row when uh, 2020 rolls around. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.